Good morning. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. You can also find the scripture in your bulletin. And as you can see there, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 23. And just to kind of get our bearings in the context, since our passage does begin with the word, therefore, we need to see and just recognize that what what Paul has been talking about, um, that he has been speaking about the gospel and the glories of the gospel, the indwelling Christ, and that believers have been filled in him with the one who bears the fullness of deity, and that believers have been, in, in these words, of, in the image of circumcision, have been crucified with Christ, have been buried with him through their in-baptism and raised, right, using this imagery, being raised, buried with Christ, died with Christ, and raised to new life in Christ. And that at the cross, God set aside the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross, and overcame and was victorious over the powers, whoever they may be, that humankind has been for ages and generations subject to in one way or another. And so Paul says that um, Paul just expounds this victory the victory of Christ, and the glories of the gospel. And then we come to our section here in verse 16. Look with me as I read. This is God's word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not, hand, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come before you now and we recognize our deep need that we need your word. We need to feed upon your word. We need to hear the word of Christ. And so we ask for your help. We ask that you would open our ears, soften our hearts, grant us uh, right conviction, uh, encouragement, by your Spirit, may you speak to us now by your Holy Spirit, through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this sermon today by 
talking about a little thing called uh, FOMO. Now, I'm not trying to be relevant or edgy by talking about FOMO. It's really not, you know, it's not like an edgy thing anymore, right? The, the word was added to the dictionary in 2013, I believe. It's hopefully you know what it, I mean, maybe you don't know what it is, and that's fine. FOMO basically just means fear of missing out. And I was reading a Time article talking about it recently and online, because I believe that's where time exists. I don't know. Um, it describes it this way, that FOMO is the uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you are missing out, that your peers are doing in the know about or in possession of more or something better than you. Can you relate to that feeling at all? You felt that at all recently? FOMO is a deep issue stemming from our inner dissatisfaction with our own lives. It leads us to anxiously compare our lives with other people. And so it's super good for social media companies and super bad for our mental health. Right? It can drive people to make rash decisions. It's what stands behind the midlife crisis or the quarter-life crisis or whatever you want to call it. It stands behind broken marriages. It stands behind impulsive purchases things we don't need. It's, it's something that's a, a problem. And this was a problem that Paul wanted to address in the Colossian church. See, the Colossians were in danger of thinking. There were voices out there. We don't know, again, Paul may have, been just, Paul may have known that this kind of teaching was just in the air. Or he was directing his you know, polemic against a particular group or a person or whatever it may be. But he knew that this, these voices were out there and that the Colossians listening to these voices would be tempted to think that certain people, not outside the church per se, more so inside the church, those who were calling themselves Christians, were kind of acting in a way, doing certain things, saying certain things that would make them think, though they came to faith in Christ, though they believed in Christ, that yet these other people were doing things or were in the know about things or were in possession of more or better things than they had in Christ. So spiritual FOMO is what Paul is getting at in our passage today. That's what he's addressing. And we're going to look at how he addresses that in three points we're going to look first at voices whispered, voices exposed, and voices ignored. These voices are in the air in the Colossian church. And first, we, we, Paul identifies what they are. So we need to hear what are the voices that are being whispered in this passage to the Colossians, and how might that apply to us? So first, consider voices whispered. We need to see as we come to our passage, that our passage is an expansion upon statements that Paul has already made. He made statements in verse 4 and verse 8. In verse 4, he says, 
this. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. By what? By what he calls philosophy, which are just empty deceits. And and we talked about it the last sermon. Craig talked about this. He said, you know, made it clear that philosophy is not the technical discipline of philosophy that we know of, but more any system of thought, more mostly probably a religious kind of way of thinking, or what we might call the worldview, that turns the focus away from the simplicity of Christ, his person, and his work, and dependence upon him alone, to something else that's empty. And this is a deceitful kind of religion that seems appealing and that may be clothed in Christian garb and Christian language, but is really worldly. It's really anti-Christ. It is what Paul says, not according to Christ. And so he warns them of a form of religion or Christianity that is, in verse 8, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. And again, if you want to know what Paul means by elemental spirits of the world, you can listen to Craig's last sermon. But the same description we see appears in our passage, right? Verse 20. We see the elemental spirits of the world. Verse 22, human precepts and teachings. So Paul's Paul's filling out the picture of what he has in mind here. And what we see is that in the Colossian context, there were certain people, or Paul is just assuming that this is going to happen, someone's going to come to you doing these kinds of things. He's heard this stuff before. Paul is not a novice. He's seen this kind of thing. And so he knows that either it's happening now or it will happen. Some are going to come to you and they're, they're going to say, look at these practices that we're doing. They're going to want to turn your attention back to Old Covenant rituals. We see that in verse 16. They're teaching purity laws, right? Food and drink, observance of festivals, Also, new moons and Sabbath days. The old covenant ceremonial law. And he he kind of like describes what they'd be saying. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Right? Don't contaminate yourself with these external things, with these objects, and go to the right places and do the right things and have the right form. Right? It's about technique. Have you done enough? Have you checked all these boxes? You should be observing the whole Torah. You're missing out on the festivals. There's more than faith in Christ. There's more to be had. But you got to do the right things. You got to jump through the right hoops. And especially, you got to go back to these things that you're missing out on. And above and beyond this, they are pursuing a rigorous course of bodily discipline. Self-denial, asceticism. Apparently, in an attempt to tap into these greater, deeper, higher spiritual realities, the spiritual realm, perhaps to influence positively the powers, the forces that they think they're falling victim to or they need to appease or whatever it may be. 
And this is how they're going to do it. We're going to discipline ourselves so that we can be qualified to enter in. We see this description, asceticism, severity to the body, worship of angels, going on about visions that they've had in verse 18. They insist on these things, Paul says. And actually, a better translation is they delight in these things. And that paints a really good picture of what's happening. They are delighting in their way that they've found. They are delighting in them because they distinguish them from the common rabble of the church. Right? We are of another level. And you can come up to our level if you do these things. They delight in the higher path that they walk, in the deeper wisdom that they found. And the result is, is that they have this orientation of judgment, kind of a downward, critical look on those who can't keep up with them and do all the things that they do and check all the boxes. They look down on those who are clearly less committed and less spiritually minded. You haven't had a vision recently? Sorry for you. Simple faith in the Lord Jesus, offering up prayers to God, gathering around the table together in the bond of peace, receiving the word of Christ with meekness, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thankfulness in your hearts. It's child's play. It's good. It's the ABCs. You need to ascend to higher things. The truly mature will do more. The truly mature will make greater sacrifices and will experience greater things than you currently are. Why is your life so mundane? Why is your Christian experience so lame? Follow us. We know the way. And you'll be rewarded with a higher, deeper, better Christian experience. You see how they're stirring up the FOMO in the heart of these Colossians. And Paul is going to address this. But he identifies the voices. And we can identify similar kinds of voices, a similar framework, way of thinking, all throughout the Christian world. Right? Traditions that delight in their rituals, their forms, their feasts, their fasts, the saints and the angels, and just, you don't have these things? You don't have anything. You don't have Christ. Those who say, we found the secret to the higher life, the higher Christian life, and if you just follow our principles, you'll free your mind up and you'll enter in too. You'll arrive. The televangelists who claim that their prayers, they have the special power. They have special access. Our prayers and our special objects have this kind of, they can offer you protection and blessing that you need. Right? Just send your check in. 
pastors who gain a following by, not by teaching the truth of Scripture, but by recounting their impressive, personal, mystical experiences, what they've heard, what they've seen. So we see the ritualists and we see the experientialists and even those who are super, we would say, are super conservative, right? Who seem so holy because they flaunt their total separation from the world by regulating the external things, right? If the world seeks pleasure by twisting and abusing God's gifts, well, we're going to show our devotion to God by denying ourselves of God's gifts or by stripping all the joy and pleasure out of them. And we'll live a somber and colorless and humorless and stoic, quiet life. That's the higher life. We'll show how much we sacrifice and suffer for God. And Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says that this is a demonic teaching. It's demonic teaching that forbids what God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So Paul addresses the ritualism, the mysticism or experientialism, and the asceticism and he calls it out. Now, we probably should pause and just make a little caveat here when we're talking about ritual, or we're talking about diet, these things that Paul now is saying is kind of putting his finger on. And we should make a caveat and say, you know, maybe we should write down in our notes Romans chapter 14. Because there, Paul makes allowance for various, what he calls, opinions about external things, right? According to conscience, according to weakness, and also saying that some people may choose a certain diet in honor of the Lord. Some people may honor a day, choose to honor a day in honor of the Lord. But the issue is, Paul would say, don't make these things, these external things, the main thing. And don't hold them over the head of your brothers and sisters if they do as you do or don't do as you don't do or whatever. Don't divide the church over it between the haves and the have-nots. Don't put them on a gospel level of importance. So the whispering voices that Paul here is attacking, he's going after and, and identifying are those that say, you know, they separate, they divide the church, and they, they stir up FOMO. They say, maybe you haven't done enough. Maybe you haven't sacrificed enough for God, for him to notice you, to receive the fullness of grace and blessing that he has available to you. That's why your experience is so hard and mundane. You must be missing out on something that's essential for your flourishing, some ritual, some practice. Or you're just not sacrificing enough. You're just not working hard enough to enter in. And so Paul identifies these whispering voices. 
And then he exposes them. So consider point two, voices exposed. How does Paul expose these voices? What does he say about them? Well, first he addresses the ritualism. Right In verse 17, he calls it essentially shadow worship. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And we see the same teaching in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, where the author there says that the Mosaic ritual law that revolved around Levitical priesthood and tabernacle, that whole ceremonial law was but a shadow of the good things to come. But the true form of these realities, not the true form of these realities, the substance belongs to Christ. The object of our faith, the substance of our salvation, has come. The coming things have come. Now, the Old Testament ceremonies and rituals, they were useful for their time. Right? In a shadowy way, those old promises and types, right? Even like the types of land and temple and prophet, priest, and king set up, right? In Israel's history, these things signified, foretold of a coming Christ and a coming kingdom who has come. And the ritual laws of clean and unclean distinctions, distinguishing between created things, was something that God imposed for a time to teach about a deeper contagion of sin and taught them of their need for a truer cleansing, a deeper renewal of the heart that would be by the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so now that Christ has come and established the new covenant, we're not dealing with shadowy things anymore. The new covenant is the real deal. We partake of the realities. And so Paul is not saying that ritual in itself is a bad thing or an evil thing because Jesus established rituals, two of them, right? The Lord's Supper and baptism. And these are valid and useful and are what we call means of grace under the new covenant because they are tangible means by which believers lay hold on Christ and his grace. They're helps to our faith. They signify with a new kind of clarity these new covenant realities that we receive by faith in him. But the old covenant rituals have expired with that covenant. That stream of grace that Old Covenant saints drank from has dried up because a new fountain has been opened up in the Lord Jesus. And so to go back to that now dried up stream and trying to get grace from that, that's an offense to the living God. It's turning away from the substance. It's a retrograde move back. It's a kind of apostasy. Uh, Our son Haddon is almost one now, and he's walking. And 
sometimes as he's walking around, he sees his shadow. And he'll go after it and kind of like try to find it on the wall, try to grab it or something. He's reaching around for it, and it's super cute. Well, what would you think if I did that? not so cute, right? Because we know that unless you're Peter Pan, there's nothing to grab there. There's nothing to hold on to. Substanceless. And kids, what if when you were hungry in the morning and you asked your parent, if you don't get it yourself, maybe you should be, but if you asked them for breakfast or cereal in the morning, what if they cut out the picture of the cereal on the cardboard box and gave you a spoon and said, there's your cereal. Enjoy. It's beautiful, isn't it? Right? This is what Paul is talking about. It is absurd to go back to the shadows when the substance is here. And that's what the ritualism is. False ritualism is. They're actually, by feasting on shadows, and starving their souls. So Paul calls out the ritualism, but he also calls out the ascetic mysticism. These two things kind of go together. And he says in verse 18 that these are puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and that they don't hold fast to the head. Those who make much of their mystical experiences and are boasting in their great visions and experiences, they're puffing themselves up, right? Their head is swelling bigger and bigger and bigger until they can't even, they have become a new head. They've set themselves up as a new head. They're drawing attention to themselves. And they themselves can't even hold on to the head, and they're leading others away from Christ, right? From whom, Paul says in verse 19, the whole body nourished and knit together through joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Why do you think Paul is talking about joints and ligaments here? Because he's saying the body is supposed to be bound together. And all of it, all, everyone in the body receiving the same, from the same source of life. But these are setting themselves up as another source, another head. And they themselves are not looking to Christ. And they're drawing others away. They're tearing apart the body. They're tearing the ligaments. Because they're distinguishing themselves, setting themselves apart as superior. And Paul calls their mind a sensuous mind. I think a better translation here would be fleshly mind. Fleshly mind. And it's kind of funny when you when you really understand what Paul is saying here, because according to the philosophy of the day, we've kind of talked about this in Sunday school, right? The body, many people thought that the body was the flesh, right? They referred to the body as flesh, and that it was the flesh, the body of flesh, that chained them kind of down to the earth. And this inner spirit, which was mind, had this inherent connection to the divine realm. And so if we can starve the body, if we can push down the body, if we can do violence to the body, we can free up the mind. And we can connect to spiritual realities. And they were delighting in this. And Paul says, no, actually, your mind is 
flesh. Your mind is flesh, fleshy. Your bodies aren't the problem. The real, the real flesh is the inner corruption of sin, not the body. And that permeates every faculty of your being, including your mind. And so as you're delighting in your experiences, your flesh is having a heyday, feasting on your pride as it grows and as it swells because you think you're something special. And so Paul identifies all these things and exposes them, and he basically says, look, bodily, this regulating the body has no, effect, no effect on the fleshly mind. Adding rules, building fences, making resolutions, self-afflictions, the flesh is untouched. He says in verse 23, severity of the body is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. John Owen, uh, ta- an old Puritan, talking about the old monastic orders and their rigorous penances and self-imposed afflictions, he says this. He says, what horrible self-starvations were practiced by some of the ancient authors of monastical devotion. What violence did they offer to nature what extreme sufferings did they impose upon themselves? Search their ways and principles to the bottom and you will find that it had no other root but this mistake, namely, that in their attempt to kill sin, they fell upon the natural man instead of the old corrupt man, upon the body wherein we live instead of the body of death. You see the distinction he's making there? Same thing Paul is talking about attacking the physical body when the fleshly mind runs much deeper. Now, you might not be tempted to monastical penances and afflictions, wearing rough clothing and whipping yourself for whatever it may be, or starving yourself to get at your sin. But let me ask you this. When you do sin, and when you are reminded, or when you just feel the depth of your inner corruption, what's your first impulse? Is your first impulse to tell yourself, to remind yourself, I am a child of God. I'm fully known and fully loved and accepted because of Jesus. Is your first impulse to run to Jesus, to be taken up in his arms and restored by his grace to receive his full forgiveness? Or, even though you know that he's good and he would do this for you, do you stay away? Do you keep yourself away from him? Do you deprive yourself of him in some twisted attempt to afflict yourself and punish yourself? Do you attack yourself with shaming words? You are such an idiot. What kind of a Christian are you? Who would think or do such a thing? You are a loser. That does nothing to the flesh. 
It's of no value. And Paul calls this out. If you really understood how deep your corruption goes, you would not be satisfied or delight in superficial remedies. Whether it be mere do's and don'ts or ritualism or self-imposed sacrifices and afflictions or just mystical experiences to make yourself feel better about yourself. Paul calls all of this self-made religion. Even if it goes by a Christian name, it may have the appearance of wisdom. It may, you may find it in the Christian church, but it is anti-Christ religion. So what do we do with these voices when we hear them, when we find them? Let's consider our last point. Voices ignored. And I think you know what we should do with them. Assuming you're trusting in Jesus today, Paul says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you or condemn you would be a good translation as well. Verse 18, don't let anyone disqualify you. Literally, don't let them steal your prize. Don't let them call a foul against you as you seek to follow Jesus and disqualify you from the race. Right? Imagine an Olympic athlete running for the gold and the gun goes off and she's running. And some observer in the audience sees that she's not wearing the right kind of shoes. She's wearing New Balance, not Nike. And so he pulls out his whistle that he brought from home and he blows it with all of his might to call a foul, disqualify her. What should she do? Should she listen? to? It's a whistle. It's supposed to stop when the whistle blows. We would say, no, right? Keep running. Ignore that. That person has no authority to disqualify you. Verse 20, he says, why would you submit? Meaning, don't submit. Be stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious against this kind of superficial, man-made religion. It's useless. Why? Why don't submit? Because Christ has set you free, in the words of Galatians, or in our passage, because you died with Christ. Verse 20, if you died, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? This, this uh, words translated submit to regulations, it takes us back to verse 14. Right? This is a, a verb which means, why do you let yourself be regulated? But that same kind of word in a noun form appears in verse 14. It's the legal demands that Christ, that was nailed to Christ's cross. If the full and complete and perfect standard of righteousness that we could not fulfill, that stood against us, was nailed to the cross, if that standard, if that record was nailed to the cross, how can you submit to these body regulators who want to impose another law upon you? Their laws, their, their rituals, their standards. It doesn't make any sense. right? Because 
he has submitted. He submitted himself. So now we don't have to submit to any of this. He submitted himself to the real law, to the law of God. And he joyfully submitted under it. He joyfully fulfilled it. And then he submitted himself under the curse of that law, not because he transgressed it, but because we transgressed it. For us, he did it. And then he gifts us his cross to be ours, such that you and I can say, I have been crucified. That flesh, that regulations can't get at, that can't wrangle it, that flesh has been killed as far as God is concerned at the cross then and there. That's gospel. Now how can you submit to a this worldly kind of religion as if you're still alive in the world? Right? As if you're still trying to earn your way into the kingdom. As if you're still under the law. As if you still belong to this age. As if you're still trying to gain God's approval. You, have you not died with Christ? Were you not baptized into his death and raised a new creation in Christ? Do you not fully belong to the kingdom of God now? And have you not been filled with all the fullness of God? This is what Paul, how Paul addresses the spiritual FOMO situation. He says, pick up the axe of the gospel and cut it off at the root. Cut it off at the root. Because really, what's the root of spiritual FOMO? It's the inner sense that I don't have all of God. I don't have all of the blessing of God. I don't really, I don't know if I have his love or his acceptance or his favor or his blessing or his smile or his embrace. There's something undone maybe that I need to, I need to still do. And so Paul says, take the acts of the gospel and cut that out at the root. You can't fear missing out on something that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you already have. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ today by simple faith in him, dependence upon him, you have his righteousness. You have his blessing. He has taken your sin and God's curse and he has given you blessing. You have grace upon grace. You have his protection. You have his provision. You have his inheritance. You belong to his kingdom. You have a family. You have the smile of God. You have the fullness of his love have been brought to fullness in him. So spiritual FOMO does not need to have a place in your life, brother, sister. Listen to the words of Jesus as we close. Jesus said, Fear not. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. 
Thank you for the fullness of grace that we have received in Christ by faith in him alone. Help us now to lift our eyes, to behold your smile, to run to you with our sin and shame, to be taken up in your arms, to be cleansed anew, and to continue to follow after our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.